everybody feels, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm crossing the line because I got a family to feed. So do all the people that are outside. They have a family to feed too. There's always another way. And if we don't stick together, the people that are, um, that we call scabs that are feeding their families, everything will diminish for them too. We're gonna wake up one day and there won't be a union. There won't be anybody to protect our rights as workers. You have them, you have us. When enough of us has sat back and said, enough, that's enough, then the machines will stop. That's a clip from Local 1196, a steelworkers strike. A brand new film by our guest today, Sam George. Last year, 1,500 steelworkers in western Pennsylvania went out on strike for four long months. If you don't remember hearing about the strike, don't worry, Elise and I hadn't either. It was against a company named ATI, Allegheny Technologies Incorporated, and even though the strike involved 1,500 steelworkers at nine different locations, it never really made the radar on the national labor scene in a year that saw a huge increase in both strikes and union organizing. So we're very fortunate that Sam George decided to embed himself and his camera in the strike by Local 1196. Sam is an exciting young documentary filmmaker who works for the Bertelsmann Foundation, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based in Washington, D.C. Sam's documentaries, which include The Fields of Immokalee, bring viewers up close and personal to people and communities facing the challenges and opportunities of the 21st century, offering candid perspectives that allow viewers to draw their own conclusions. His films focus on the intersection of politics, economics, social issues, and daily life. Filming on the ground from the Turkish-Syrian border to the factories of Juarez, Mexico, to elections in West Virginia, and now a factory in Western Pennsylvania, Sam's films seek to offer a voice to those affected by policy and macro trends, but who often are denied a seat at the table where decisions are made. Sam's documentaries have screened in festivals and special events in the U.S., Canada, Latin America, Africa, and Europe, and we were thrilled to have a chance to chat with him about his latest film, which screens free this Saturday, March 19th, 4 p.m., at the MLK DC Public Library, that's at 901 G Street Northwest in Washington, DC. We've got a link to RSVP in the show notes. I'm Chris Garlock. Stay tuned as labor goes to the movies. Hello. Brother George, how you doing, man? Doing good. How are you? Fabulous. All right, so thanks for being with us. Appreciate your time. And Elise is going to start us off with the question that we ask everybody. So, Elise? So, Sam, what's uh, your favorite movie from your earliest memory? Oh, boy. Now, that is a good question. 
from my earliest memory, I think the first movie I ever saw in a theater was with my grandmother was, I think it was Bambi. I think my grandma took me to Bambi and I don't remember particularly liking it or not. I just remember being impressed. Remember I saw the little mermaid early on in the theater and really liked that. One of my least favorite theater moments was one time my birthday party was to go see Lion King in the theater <laughs> and the theater didn't work. Like the movie projection broke and it was devastating. <laughs> yes. But I don't know. I, my favorite, I really liked, what was the one, the old basketball movie about the, the oh, hoops, uh, something hoops, right? Or is that different? You think about it? I think about it. Gene Hackman. Oh my God. Hoosiers. I love that. Yeah, I remember being a little kid and watching Hoosiers a whole lot. So from my, if the question is my earliest memory, we can go Hoosiers, but it's a, it's an interesting question. We ask it because it, it, it does really bring up and especially for filmmakers. And, and one of the things that we've been noticing, not surprisingly, how many folks were taking those Disney films as kids. So he's Disney's really had this sort of. I'm not even going to call it subliminal. It's right there. It's, that's what you take the kids to. And I, you could probably whole things have been written on how that affects us. Yeah. And then it comes out now that there's a lot of problematic things in it. And I, I haven't researched that, but I'm aware of those discussions. So that, that went all over my head as a kid. You just and there's certain things you realize that I'm a big fan of reggae music now. And, and you go back and listen to Little Mermaid and I, I guess Sebastian the Crab, his song is a reggae song. And it's like, who knows what seeps into a little kid. But yeah, you're right. At the time, you're just watching. Just sneaking that stuff in. All right. Uncharacteristically, I actually did a little bit of research. And so I, I see you got you got a bachelor's from Oberlin. You got a mm -hmm. master's from in, in international economics and Latin American studies from Johns Hopkins. And you're uh, working on your PhD at Johns Hopkins. Is that all correct? That's correct. It's slow. That's the work on the PhD has been mostly observed in the absence, but I'm trying my best. It's something that means a lot to me. It's something that really, it's a fascinating topic. I'm working on the impact of digital access just on civil society in Cuba. Because Cuba just all of a sudden got the internet out of nowhere in 2014, 15. And so it's a very interesting question of what, what, what happens when you have a society and you just drop internet into it. But yeah, we're working on that. That's all correct. Everything you said is correct. I was, I'm looking at all of that and I'm just, and we're here in DC. So we see a lot of folks like you with the degrees and the DC, they don't usually wind up being filmmakers. They wind up being policy wonks. So that was really to set up the question is how the heck did you wind up being a documentary filmmaker and not doing research for some congressional committee or something? Yeah, I, I ask myself that every day. I'm very happy at this point being able to work on these films. And it's something that I really would like to make a career out of that I'm trying to do in the long term. And if I just think about the amount of luck and unlikeliness that went into it, it's just, it's difficult to imagine such a thing repeating itself. But you're right. I was, I, I, I found, I think what my real calling was was anthropology. My dream was to go into different cultures and spend time with different people and understand how people do different things and what, what unites us and what we can learn from each other. But I think as a younger person, I didn't really even understand what anthropology was. And I got a little turned around and thought what I wanted was international relations which is very much policy walk, economic analysis. And I did go back and get the degree and then I got a job actually here at Bertelsmann Foundation working on policy kind of things. And and I have to say that was like unfulfilling in a way for me. Like mm. I wanted to be out there meeting people and talking to people and engaging. 
And instead I was behind a desk reading economic stuff and writing economic stuff. And so I had this brilliant idea that if I was going to film the interview with a policymaker in Argentina, let's say, I can't exactly do that from here. I guess I'd have to go to Argentina. It was almost like a little trick. And, and, and I'm very happy to say that the work supported me and we got this tiny little camera and I started doing these interview videos. And that's what really exposed me to this whole world of really cinematography and documentary filmmaking. And I just fell in love with it. I absolutely fell in love with it. And I realized that, okay, so the first thing I would do is I would say, let's say I was going somewhere, I would schedule an interview with a policymaker. And then I might schedule an interview with somebody at a think tank. But the real kind of thing that opened a new door in my mind is I started asking people on the street what they thought, maybe a cab driver, or maybe somebody selling newspapers. I say, hey, politician X just said this. What do you think about that? And they would give me some comment and I would start to mix those into the interview videos. And I didn't know what I was doing, but what I was doing were these little baby steps towards documentary film. And I have to say, I just had this tremendous amount of support from the Bertelsmann Foundation, which at the time was primarily like a think tank. We wrote papers and they supported us. And, and as we got better at the craft, we would start getting better equipment. And then as we continued to get better and, and our bosses eventually supported this idea that instead of being 90%, you know, big shot policymakers and 10% people on the street to really go into telling the story people that were impacted by policy and not making policy. And I think it was a discovery for me. And when I discovered how much it meant to me and how powerful it could be and how it put me in a position to really meet people and understand their experiences, I've just tried to take advantage of every second I can't get to do it and do it the best I can. I don't think that's a, a comp, but I, and I think that there's certain advantages. I think a lot of people go to maybe a film school and then have to learn that kind of policy economic side on the fly. I had the opposite. I learned the, the policy and economics and how things work. What I had to learn on the fly was the film stuff, but it's helped me be able to approach different stories in different places very quickly because I studied the politics and economics. Yeah, that makes sense. And the, uh, the thing that was really interesting to me was that you're not a trained filmmaker, but, but I have to say, we'll talk more about this. Uh, I think your films, I watched the Immokalee film also, I was surprised to find out that you're not trained because I think your eye is, is beautiful. Really, the, the films are gorgeous. Digan la verdad, porque no quieren dejar de trabajar. Nos lavamos las manos antes de qué? De comer. Antes de comer y qué más? De cocinar. Antes de ir al baño, antes de qué? De cocinar. De cocinar, porque no queremos contaminar a los niños y a las personas que queremos más, ¿verdad? I'm interested. So we started anthropology and we said, oh, we get the policy, we're in the policy, and then we student, and you figure out that, oh, hey, I can big shot about asking something else happened in your life that made you that kind of what triggered that awareness? Well, uh, first of all, I just I just want to thank you, Chris, for that comment and Elise. That means a whole lot to me because it's something that I think about a lot. And you mentioned the Immokalee film and 
that's one of my favorite things I've ever done. And, and just to, and that one's the one that primarily is told through images. And that's where I really think the power of film comes in because it's, in some ways, I think we use film nowadays as a shortcut because people don't want to read things. So it's like, if you're not going to read what I think, maybe you'll watch me say it. And that way film is a shortcut. But that's not the real power and beauty of film, at least to me. The real power of beauty is this ability to put you in that position and, and let you see through the eyes of somebody else. And I think the closest maybe I ever got to, to succeeding in that vision was in that Immokalee thing. So it, it means a lot that you meant that up. You brought that up. And similarly, at least with your comment, the artist. I watched it first. Well, oh, okay. So you're the one that gave it. I, I assume, first of all, I'm kind of surprised how young because I really thought this was some long-time filmmaker, documentarian, yaddy, a baby boom. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is it's so beautifully told, and it is that first-person narrative take up. Yeah. And it's right there where in her right Yes, there. yes. And, so, and so much of that is, is th the people involved. There's so much trust there because okay. they don't know me, and they don't know what I'm going to do. And they don't know what a Bertelsmann Foundation is, which is where I, and the trust that you have to create with people. And, and to me, that's some of the biggest pressure of all this is not to betray that trust. I wanted to jump. I wanted to jump in on that, though, because just because I, I had watched Immokalee second. And that's I texted Elise and said, you got to see this. And Elise, she's so funny. She's got all these meetings going on, but she snuck the one in between the other. Um and, and I was thinking when I was watching the Immokalee film, and I'd already done the research, I knew you were this white guy. And I'm thinking, and I know Immokalee because we, and Lisa does this too, we know the Immokalee workers, that long struggle there. And I'm thinking, how did this young white guy get himself into a position where people would allow him into their lives like that? So I think back to Elisa's original question. Right, is, right, right. What, what happened? Where does that come from? Right. In, your life. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very fair question. And I think that there's two kinds of things. And one is just being raised in a situation where my parents, it was extremely important to them and they built their lives around engaging with different communities and not just engaging, but engaging in a respectful level, but really engaging on a, on an equal level. And my mom was very much, they're both children of the sixties. My mother was a major anti-war protester that drifted into very far left kind of politics and labor politics, actually. When I really? learned to, yeah, for example, this is a, the stories you learn later. When I was a kid, one of the things my mom did, she had a job sewing clothes and they're really cute kind of clothes. She would like, it would be like sewing a soccer ball on a sweatshirt. And, and of course, as a kid, I never stopped and thought about how does somebody that has a college degree, why do they end up working in, in clothing manufacturing? And it's only later in life that I learned that she was part of this mission to go work in factories and try to organize the workers. That's what she, to me, she was just making clothes, but she was like in there trying to organize work. And she went on to be somebody that um, worked directly with uh, young people having a lot of problems and then ended up working on policy for young people having problems. And then my father, the same thing. He was a public defender for decades in the city of Philadelphia and is now part of the Larry Krasner administration. So the social awareness is something that it just, I don't know any other kind of life. I don't know, I'm not a great business person. I was never trained. I wouldn't know how to be an entrepreneur. I don't know my way around like that kind of mentality. We, that's just uh, a social awareness was a daily thing for me. 
And so, for example, it was extremely important that I learned Spanish to my mother. I could have hmm. cared less. I really could have. I had no idea why I needed to learn Spanish. <laughs> and I was in college and I didn't know Spanish. And they said, look, you can come home and get a summer job or you can go to Southern Mexico and learn Spanish. And I said, I well, between those two, Smart. That's, that's not cheap to just send a kid there. And, and I had a friend that did something similar and he was going to this like fancy beach in Costa Rica. And my mom was like, first of all, we don't, we're not going to pay for that. And then second of all, if you do it, you're going to go to like, not a fancy beach area in Costa Rica. And they sent me to Oaxaca, Mexico, which is this incredible cultural epicenter of Mexico. And it was really an eye-opening experience. And it all comes full circle to the original question, because that began a love affair with the Spanish language and ultimately led me to pursue. I studied in Chile and I taught English in Spain and did different things and got pretty good at Spanish. So then when I go to Immokalee, I'm able to connect with people, not as just as you say, some young white guy that is like coming from a different place. I can at least show that I've made the effort to understand their culture and community and can try to engage in a level. And everything done there was in Spanish. There was no discussion between us in English. So it's that building blocks over time to take advantage of those opportunities to experience other cultures that help me in those moments. Um, but that, I think that's the, the philosophical side of, of engaging with the content this way. I think also I've always had an appreciation and a desire to create and make art and to see the beauty in art so that, that pushed me. I used to play guitar a whole lot and things like that. And mostly enjoying film as an art form that I realized that, and, and I feel like a lot of times that art gets sucked out of the way we talked about these policy issues, especially in this kind of era of big data. And, and so I also, what really made me a happier person was the ability to reintroduce that artistic element into my life with my work. And that's what I was really missing. And to have the chance to do that again, to take a story like Immokalee and tell it through images of the town waking up. And I think that's equally valuable and maybe more valuable than if I told you 60% of people wake up at 4 a.m. and can't find work anyway. I appreciate that question. Thank you. Anytime I get to talk about my mom, I'm happy because oh. she was a special person. And um, I appreciate that question. That, that, that's Elisa's specialty. And I have to tell you also, among her many hats, and I've learned a new word from Elisa's week, attitude, but she's also the uh, executive director of the Labor Heritage Foundation, which is all about art. It's specifically about labor and the arts, but I think he's singing your tune, isn't he, Elise? But before we get into the film that you just made, the so I think I have a better understanding of how you came to make the Immokalee film. It makes a lot more sense to me now, given your background, given, you know, and I knew you had to be a Spanish speaker because there's just no way you can have that kind of relationship. But did that and, and the background, is that what got you interested? Is that what brought you to making a film about a strike? I mean, that, I'm trying to figure out the, the backstory there. Well, that's a good question as well. And I think, I think I really do enjoy working on labor. I think it's such an important issue. But the, the way we got to this documentary about the strike was, uh, again, a series of coincidences. And I don't know if you want to go in that direction now. I can tell you how that film came about or... Go for it. Well, we'd want to do... So the last two films we had made, especially because of COVID, we had been very local because we couldn't travel. We weren't allowed to travel. And I'm not sure we would have wanted to even if we could. But there's so much luck involved in things. Just before COVID started, so I'm talking about 
it must have been, let's say, January or February of 2020. I got the okay to make this documentary about gentrification in Washington, D.C. And through this kind of lens of go-go music, using go-go music, which is just a kind of music I loved as an entry point to talk about this massive gentrification in Washington, D.C. And I got the go-ahead and I started that filming. And then COVID hit. If I had been working on a project, and it was the first time I'd ever been working on something in D.C., if I had been working on something anywhere else, I would have had to shut down the project because we couldn't go anywhere. But I happened to be working on Washington so I could keep doing it. And we made that was Go Go City, a documentary, which if, if anyone's interested in a shameless plug is just now online. We're, we're a nonprofit organization. All our films are free, so you can definitely check this out online. And then the next film was similarly local for the same reasons, and it was about voting in Baltimore. It's called Out to Vote, and that's going to be online shortly too. And our feeling was we had done two stories about kind of urban America, very different topics, but set in urban America. And then you had this incredibly contentious election, and then you had the January 6th, disaster. And the feeling was what in the world is pushing and motivating these feelings from a more rural America. It was this sort of urban rural divide that, that you could get to this point where so many people would be willing to undermine American democracy, that they felt that this was the this, this step or, or, or that we would somehow not respect the results of an election, or I don't want to make this conversation more political than it needs to be. But the idea oh. was that's okay. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh, it's a different to, place to do it. <laughs> okay. We wanted to get out and talk to people in these areas. And again, it was something that I knew I wanted to be able to spend a lot of time there. So I didn't want to go too far away. I wanted to be somewhere I could drive and just started looking at different areas. And I started to close in on Western Pennsylvania because this is an area that was historically Democrat that then had switched very heavily in, a, in the other direction. And you were seeing people that were getting arrested from the protests that were coming from these towns in Western Pennsylvania. And it seemed like something that we could investigate. What's going on in these areas that's causing this frustration and angst and, and willingness to go these kind of drastic political directions? So again, still, we're not at labor at this point, right? I thought I was good. My idea was I was going to try to embed and meet some sort of Republican circles there, talk to people and find out what was going on. That's where I thought this was going. And I sent out a number of emails to that respect and basically got nowhere. But you might be able to embed with some, with some Spanish speaking workers in a motley, but I'm not sure I see you passing with some one percenters. <laughs> yeah, right. But I came across this article in like a small regional Western Pennsylvania newspaper that said negotiations for a new contract with the steel workers at this mill were falling apart and they were, it was possible that they were going to strike. And the, the newspaper had a picture and the picture showed this massive blue steel mill just swamping over this little, what you would picture in a storybook of 1950s kind of American town. And there was something about that picture that, that made me want to know more. And so I just, I just start working backwards. Who do I get in touch with? The newspaper qu quoted a guy named Todd Barbio, who said was the union president. So I called the union and asked for Todd Barbio. And they said, he's in a meeting, but here's his cell phone number. Let's call his cell phone number, leave a message. That's what I do all the time. Nobody calls me back. In a documentary kind of setting, you say, well, how do you get so close to these people? You have to understand that it's the 10% that engage and, and you just have to get used to a lot of people. And that's totally their right. I don't take offense to it at all. A lot of people would prefer not to, and that's fine. 
but Todd called me back and just a wonderful person. Again, there's that trust. He doesn't really know who I am and what I want to do, but he said, come on down and you can film. And I wasn't supposed to begin filming this documentary for another three weeks, but he was like, look, if we strike it, it's going to be in two days. So you wouldn't want to get down here up there. So I, without really knowing what to expect, I just got in a car and drove, made that first of what turned out to be many trips to Western Pennsylvania. And we had no idea what was going to happen. I mean, there was a lot of rumors that contract was going to get resolved before the strike even occurred. There may have been no strike. And then there were rumors that it was going to get solved in the first 48 hours. And then what you maybe have is a short story within a bigger documentary about this labor stoppage. But a couple things happened. First of all, the labor dispute or the strike dragged out for a full four months. But then second of all, and most importantly, like the guys there were just wonderful with me and they really brought me in and opened up and they gave me access that frankly is extremely rare. You're not supposed to be able to film union meetings, but they let me film stuff. And I, I think it's because they wanted to share their story and spending time on the picket lines, but then at the union hall and then ultimately getting to go into their home. That's kind of how it came about. I'm sorry. I, the, I know these are really long answers. I, I have a tendency to ramble. Some, I think it's because <laughs> it, it, it does, it does mean a lot to me, these things. So. Yeah, it was uh, extraordinary, the intimacy with the, the Makali workers and then with this, the steel workers. And, and the contrast, the juxtaposition is just stunning. Yeah. Where they are and how, how they move. And then, really, I, especially with the last election, 2020, we're hearing about the class and union folks and their MAGA hats and yada, yada. But I didn't hear them in that way. Or, Yes. Yes. I, I thank you for saying that. And in a way that was my goal, I would say it was a subtext of the film. And that was, I just see us so incredibly divided right now, incredibly divided. And on both sides, I think there's just so much misunderstanding because I think this, the normal rank and file person from urban or rural is just so often a good person, but maybe their politics stink and maybe they screw up the vote. Maybe, but as a human being, their goals, the goals and the desires of what I heard in rural Western Pennsylvania matches up almost line to line of what I heard in urban Baltimore, this need for employment, this challenges with healthcare, indicative of a, a broader challenge with cost of living. And the fact that we've become so divided and so angry at each other when it, at the root, so much of what we want out of life is the same. And I think that's what I, I wanted to show because it's what I saw. And I think that, yeah. And, and in terms of the intimacy, I think that one thing I try to do is take a disadvantage and turn it into an advantage. And by that, I film and work alone. That's not how these things are normally made. You normally you have a team and somebody with a sound and somebody with a camera and somebody saying, okay, now take a picture of that. And because it's really hard, it's so much stuff and so many things to keep in your head. It's like a multi, it should be a bunch of people, but that was never really the budget we had for these kind of things. And so that was never the approach we took. But one thing is if you have four or five people in a crew, it's tough to create that kind of intimacy. And I think that by working alone, it makes it a little easier to create that kind of connection and kind of 
get closer to real life because it's, it gets harder to pretend you're in real life when there's eight people with cameras and, and sound sound bites. So that's a, trying to take that disadvantage and turn it into an advantage. But I think that I, I appreciate your comment because I agree. And, and I think that sometimes like our political leaders are so disgusting that we assume that if you support that leader in some way that you're probably equally. And I, I just wish, I wish we as Americans could realize that there's a lot, especially of the working people that should unite them, right? Like the challenges in Immokalee and the challenges in Western Pennsylvania and the challenges in Baltimore, it's really similar. It's, and if we could find a way to come together instead of being divided, we have more in common than I think we realize. Yeah, I think more union leadership. So here's another, I'll go back, I'm gonna go back to Chris Hector, but here's one of those moments for me. The African-American brother with the suspenders, yeah. I'm like a MAGA hat person. Yeah. What you did is you is you killed the stereotype. I, I really, I'm thinking any black person who's in there is dumping in a bag of ham <laughs> in this bought out. They're just paid to be there. They don't really care. They dump it in a bag of hammers. This guy was not dumb in. Yeah. He was articulate and informed in the wrong way, but very capable of expressing it. And I was just like, oh, and now it's a thinking person. <laughs> Black MAGA hat person. I would never have known that. I would never have known that. What for your film? I mean, I have to say that was... Wrote the stereotype. For me too. For me, there was... I did not know that. I, there were stereotypes that were broken for me in this film. As Some of them are very simple. So as you saw, there are a number of African-American people in the union in that film. And what was crazy for me is a lot of the stereotype for me as somebody that is not raised in that kind of world is you think of hunting as a very white thing to do, a white rural thing to do. All those guys did it too. And they wanted to talk about it. It's a little thing like that just opens, opens my mind up that, that these things aren't as cut and dry as you realize. And sometimes it was really difficult to parse out what they believed. And I really tried to give them a chance to explain. Like, I remember there was one guy that would be like talking about, you know, this was at a time when this kind of catchback critical race theory, which was basically meaning whatever people on the right wanted it to mean, was very strongly in the news. And the guy was talking, it was a, it was an older African-American union man. And he was saying, and he was recounting racism that he experienced. And then you could say, you can start to see where all that BS critical race theory is coming from, but I still think it's a whole bunch of BS and it's stupid. <laughs> and it was just, it was this cognitive dissonance that I wanted to give them a chance to work through because that was the other thing. It was like, all of those guys had experienced racism and they talked about it in painful ways, but the fact that they experienced it didn't take away their desire to feeling part of the, and being a part of the union and, and everything I saw was camaraderie. And, and in a sense, that was a very interesting thing for me was that once you got on that picket line or in the debate, it didn't seem like, for example, that the black union members were afraid to speak their mind. And when they did speak their mind, it didn't seem to me like they were being dismissed because they weren't part of what they were supposed to be. Now, obviously that could be, I would not make any kind of blanket statement, but from what I observed, and I thought that was very interesting that, so I feel like from my side, yeah, there was a lot of, 
I would say, and certainly not all. So I, I wouldn't, I would caution people to see the film, not to assume that everybody in it voted for Trump because it's just not true. But I would say a majority did. And I would say uh, my guess is a majority of the black people in the film voted for Trump, not all of them. And I, I wouldn't want to say which one's which. And a lot of them will tell you that they did. A lot of them were proud of it. But that was a unique finding for me. In the labor movement, is that we're not there with our message in the same way. They're going to get it from me because I can see this. If you're watching Fox News, black, white, or brown, you watch watching Fox News, that's what you start thinking. And the, the couple with the baby that died. First of all, thank you, really, Sam. Really, you must have to juke, okay? Because you're going to people's homes and you got them with their children running around and shit. And they crying and breaking down a romance. And I just thought, and it reminds the whole thing about the hospitalization, hospital insurance, and the other guy who, who was talking about his wife having cancer. Yeah. And the cost it was for him. And it was one of those wake up things for me because I have insurance and I have a hospital and daddy bought it. And so do my family because my family all were union members and still get a pension and all. And there are people who are not. Yes. Yes. And that's the crazy thing. These were like, these should be, in theory, slam dunk Democrat voters. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And that is the big question, I think, that, that comes out of this film. How is it that it's not? You know, these people, if, if you listen to them, what they're saying, it sounds like more lefty talking points where they're talking about how is it that these people at the top are making all these millions of dollars? We haven't had a raise in seven years. We're losing our health care. And because health care is tied to the company, there's no kind of public option. So if we lose that, and I think that part of it is their misinformation, but I think it's incumbent upon the Democrats to figure out why is it, if our message is the one that's going to help them, why is it? And I think it's become very easy to say it's because racism. And, I, and I'm not going to sit here and say it's not there because I'm sure it is. But what I saw in my documentary was not that was when you go into that home, that's not, or the different homes, that's not what these people want to talk about. And it doesn't seem to be motivating their approach to life. And so it calls into question these, it, it, it makes me think harder about why is, why is the Democrat party failing so badly in these areas? And it's very complicated, but to me, again, you talk about busting stereotypes and I completely agree because you have these guys that look right out of a steel mill because they are right out of a steel mill, but that they want to engage on, on, on these kind of topics and they're willing to open up about this pain. But yeah, that was a really intense kind of thing filming that experience with that guy talking about his child. I, I actually, to be honest, when I, when we got to that scene, I was, I couldn't believe you didn't open the film with that. You hear these kind of stories, but to, to, and I didn't see it coming. I did not, I did not see it. I did not see that coming. We watched, we had, we shared a film the other night on first responders at the beginning of the pandemic. And one of the main characters in it, we were sure was going to die. But then I realized it was a National Geographic one. I was like, they didn't pick this guy. I realized partway through when we thought he was going to die. It's like, no, nah, he ain't going to die. He's going to be, he's going to walk out of the hospital, which he, spoiler alert, he does in the end. So I did not see that coming. And when I, when that happened, I was like, oh, that, that, because the whole issue was healthcare. The whole issue was healthcare. And I don't know what better story there is to show I me mean, that one. How could you right, left, center, when you've got a family like that loses a child and how much was it? $2 million? And the juxtaposition that the fact that they gave him $4,000, the union raised $4,000 and that act of kindness brought him to tears. 
the four thousand dollars. Me too. And then, but then you hear that the cost of it was two million. The juxtaposition <laughs> of those two numbers is just astounding. And yeah, your question of what what do you do with something like that? And I think that one thing I think a lot about is it it. You have to, I try not to shake people down for painful stories. So it's, yeah, you put that right in the beginning. I, I, I think you're almost leveraging his pain to try to get people to watch. I, I don't know. I feel like it's so powerful because you've now been with them. You've been on the lines. I think the toughest part about this film that when I struggle, when I watch it is that I don't know if it begins a little slow because the first third of it, you're on the picket line and, and you're stuck on the picket line and you're not making a whole lot of progress. And I think that's important because you see the work that goes into it and, and then you get behind the scenes and, and see this is what's going on behind all of that. And I think that maybe it can feel a little bit slow at first, but if you get through it, then when you get to a scene like that, it really seems to be, it seems to be punching people pretty hard. And I mean, especially the guys in the union, I think it meant a lot to them to have that told. And yeah, I'm just thankful. Again, it's one of those situations where I'm thankful to him for opening up and sharing that. And I, I just hope I'm able to share it correctly and in the most tasteful way. Because you talk about something like that's going to have an impact, right? It's such a painful story. So you have to make sure that you're using it in the right way and not just using it to jerk the emotions of the audience that it's part of this broader story. Let me ask you another question. Elise and I watch a lot of uh, documentaries about union strikes and union struggles. And I could be wrong, and Elise, correct me if I'm wrong, but th this may be the first documentary about a strike that didn't have a rally, except for some of the historic union leader footage. And these are sort of tropes of the genre, which hopefully you haven't watched any of these films. You're just making your, your own way. But, and I'm saying this as a compliment, but was that, was that an intentional choice? Was that just because you, because of, you could, because I know that this was a, a much broader strike happening that it was 1500 people over multiple locations. Right. And I know that you're really drilling in, but how much of that was a choice and how much of it was just because of COVID and travel restrictions? Yeah. First of all, I have to say, you talk about some of our favorite, my favorite movies. And one of my favorite documentaries is the classic Harlan County. And most of what I was doing, I felt you're always going to be in a shadow of such an amazing film like that. But if you watch that film, the amount of energy and the fight that you see on the picket line, I was almost, it felt like an opposite of that in some ways that here they were having a lot of time keeping that vim and vigor up and they were, they were, they were very strict instructions not to be confrontation. They were, they had, they were and telling people, don't get us in trouble. Don't do anything. So there was, I, 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 I wish you would, I wish you would have put that in there because I got to tell you, and, and at least we'll tell you this too, having been on a lot of picket lines, I think it, why is he showing these guys sitting on lawn chairs, waving at the cars? How it's like two guys that it looks like it's two guys on strike, you know? But that's, but that is intentional, I think, because that is what happened is that they, they couldn't muster that kind of Force. I talked to my father who grew up in Pittsburgh and he said, it used to be when the steel mills would strike, that was a big deal. Yeah. That would cause fear across the region and it would be really confrontational. So I think that what, what I'm trying to show there, and, and I think it's accurate, is just this kind of beating down of the blue collar worker in that part of the, and that gets back to this kind of dejected outlook that can lead to these incredibly, let's say, exotic political decisions is just this beating down of these blue collar towns from what they once were 
to the point where no one's showing up to pick it. And that was a big problem for this strike is that there was nobody showing up to pick it. And I would have loved to make a documentary about everybody showing up to pick it and not letting the replacement workers get into the building. And, and that would have been way more exciting. That's what I saw in Harlan <laughs> County. But it's, but it's not what I saw and it's not what happened. And I think that that needs to be part of the nuanced conversation. If we talk about organized labor in this part, it's like, They've lost so much and they're trying to draw a line. They're trying to say, not another inch. We're not backing down another inch, but it's really hard to muster that kind of thing. So it's just this kind of, if you want to take a sports metaphor, it's like a two decade, three decade losing streak. And th that's kind of part of the film, I think. There, there's two moments that, that really, that, that really moved me uh, along those lines. One was the father with his son who's trying he was trying to uh, explain to his son, he's trying to do two things. I think one is to explain to his son what he's doing. And the other is to explain, you know, why things have to change. Incredibly painful conversation. I love the way you start in close, but then you back off and behind the plant. It was, and knowing now how you work, because I was thinking, how, I know the normal crew you have, even with a minimal crew, you should have at least a sound person. Even if it's just you and a sound person, usually like just three man crew. And so knowing that it was just you, but even you, even you backed off behind the plant and the kid cannot be bothered. And, and it's I so painful. And it's, I, I, I'm happy you mentioned that scene because I think it's so important because he's telling his son that he can't do karate anymore. And that is, it is a minor thing. So if you take that back to Immokalee where these people are afraid <laughs> to get in a car because they could get pulled over yeah, yeah, and, and, and get expelled and separated from their family. These devastating consequences at play in Immokalee. But here it's this working class humiliation. Like for this man, it was his birthright to be able to send his kid to karate and to have to sit on the couch and say, you can't go to karate. It's, it's, it's this kind of minor humiliation that you can see just seeps with him. And so I think it's a subtle moment, right? Because you're not talking about something apocalyptic, but it's, it, because it's not. And, and that was another important thing for me is that these people are poor. In Harlan County, the documentary, it takes you behind the scenes with the coal miners and they're just living in horrible conditions. They show the, there's the famous shot of the, to me, I don't know if it's famous, but I always remember the woman bathing her child. It's not in a real bathtub. It's just in like a bucket. What these blue collar, ex-urban Americans had was access to a stable middle-class life. They weren't poor. Via these jobs, they had access to a middle, and that's all they wanted out of life. And they're losing that. Would they? It was this man's birthright to send his kid to karate, and now he can't. And maybe that's not a good enough reason to be as pissed as people get, but I think that's a really painful thing. And, and yeah, it's a little it, subtle, but it's there. For me, it really came across and maybe cause I'm a dad and I mean, we've all been kids. I, I, that really resonated. And again, just film cinematically speaking, the way you backed off and gave him that, I don't, I don't know if it underlined it, but it did come across as big. The other moment, and I think at least probably appreciated it too, when the international rep does come down, when they're trying to sell them that piece of shit contract and the international rep is there. He's just trying to sell this thing and he's getting called on it. And there's this moment where he just stands there. He's got nothing. And you hold the camera on him. And I think this may be at least why you want your internationalists to see this. I don't know. Yes. And it's real. 
it's not a movie. It's not a fictional. It's real deal. Your frustration. The sister, the white sister at the end, who's like going, that guy. You also, you mentioned the guy with. She's telling the truth. Yeah, they're, gonna yeah, sure. they're not going to give us anything back. They're going to keep chopping. They're going to keep chopping. You can't deny that. Yes. And how about the guy you mentioned with the suspenders? Who we say, in some sense, is we to our taste is off base and his political outlook. But at one point, he has, to me, the most powerful speech in the film yeah. where he's, look, they're sitting on all this money. Yeah. They're not paying taxes and they can starve us out. That's right. And it's just, he's on point there. And it's extremely powerful. So, yeah, and I think that there's challenges here in that you, I build these very close and I've learned something now because I've done these films for a couple of years and I learned that the relationships you build are real, that when you create that kind of intimacy in every documentary I've made in the last few years, I have real friends that come out of it and real connections that come out of it. And you have this deep desire for them to be okay and, and honestly happy with what you've done. But at the same time, you have a journalistic desire to be accurate and correct. And I was worried because you do show that, that beating that they take. And I didn't, and I have to say that the union, the local union members have loved this film. Okay. I was going to ask. Yeah. The response. And, and I, I was, and, and, and nobody has, one thing they've all said is it's completely honest and they feel like they weren't stereotyped or caricatured, which is the, I think one thing that they fear. Now, when you get to the international, there's definitely folks up there that really liked it. And, and we're like, look, I, I wrote that thing that they were tearing up and there's nothing that was said in this film that hasn't been said on my answering machine or hasn't been, but he was like, you showed us with dignity and you, you showed the challenges, but then there are also people in the international. Like I was hoping we could do events and stuff with them. And they're like, look. We can't put our logo on this. It's going to show a divided unit or showing us getting our ass handed to us, as they said. <laughs> off the, I guess that's not off the record, but okay. I'm not saying that's an official union perspective, right. but I think that, yeah, that people are sensitive to that. And I just, I don't see, I don't see it as their fault. I think that as somebody in the union said, I don't think you would have brought this contract back if there was more on the table. I don't think it's because the, the, they were sold down the river by the unions. I think that they just are in a spot with very limited leverage. And, no, and I, th I think that one of the th problems is that, and, and Elise and I run into this all the time, if you're in a position of authority, you don't generally want to show the cracks of dissension, right. you know, yeah. and that contract, actually, I did some research on it, probably is as good a con. They didn't have to pay their health care. They actually won on that issue, yeah. which was the key issue. And, but. I think a lot of folks and in the labor movement, and this may go to your, your point about, we like victory stories, right? At least we don't like, we have plenty of stories of losses. We wrote a uh, labor jazz opera based on a murder of the Ford Rouge plant in the 1990s. And soon to be president of the UAW came and saw the show and it was a sold out audience. Members that were just like, yes, this, that big thing. just like, but Bob King was like, no, show me. Yeah. I think that, so I still can't believe I was able to get the access that I got because in a sense, a labor is a, a labor union is a team. And just, I end up talking a lot in sports metaphors, but people want to keep that stuff in the locker room. You want to show a united front. And I especially understand the international's perspective, like the headquarters, like their desire not to show the friction on the inside. And then you make a good so that is the one thing that I've been in conversation with some folks at the head, at the international about, 
And that is that last scene, because it's this kind of weird dynamic where it just shows the union members shredding the contract. Every comment is negative. And then it gets approved. Now, what is the, what somebody from the international says, I wish you could have included somebody banging the desk and saying, this is a great deal and underscoring the positive side. And the fact of the matter is, and, I, and this guy told me this always happens, is the people that are going to vote no are the ones that come and make a big show. Right. The ones that vote yes are just waiting for the time to vote and then they vote. I think that in the film, that is an accurate that is, at, at, there was no, I would have been happy to show them going back and forth and someone saying, no, we, we got X, Y, and Z. You need to get with the program. Maybe we could put in a little slide somewhere, text saying that they did achieve certain, put it in writing. That would actually be really helpful because it wasn't until I did the research, you know, and I, and you said, you said it's narrowly approved and I know how these things go. That guy is absolutely right. That is what happens. And, and at that point, people, it was clear that they needed to approve it. People need to get back to work. But I think it would be really helpful because I had to actually read fairly far down in the report that I read to find that they'd actually won on the healthcare. Yeah. And yeah, I think that would be really helpful. All right. I, 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 and I accept that. I, I think that makes sense. And there was one point in the editing. So I work with the editor, but I write it first in the editing sure. system. There was a point in when I wrote it, when I was like, this is the slide where we'll see what they were. We're going to put screen say, this is the benefits of the contract. And what, what my feeling was that a lot of this, when you put a 10% increase on the VBA or something, you put these details that nobody knows. No. And I was more trying to get the feeling of it. And so I made a conscious decision not to get into the contract depths, but just give, I thought that I had enough people saying, um, we're not going to get anything better. This is a, I don't feel like it's worth being on strike when this contract's on the table. But I think your point is totally reasonable. And I think that it's definitely not too late to go back and, and put something, these living documents, a documentary, it's nice. It, it wouldn't be very difficult to put something like that. No, and I, believe me, it's as a, as a journalist myself, right? I will have people and they tell me, oh, you left out all of this other stuff. And I'm like, yeah, nobody else cares about that. What they care about is how much did you get and did you preserve healthcare? And and, and this particular story, just a whole fight, and especially after those incredibly moving stories. And I love, by the way, that, you know, at this one point where the one guy was talking about the co-pays and how much he's paying. And, and I think this is to Elise's point, that, that's real. That's the guy, you can see him mentally doing the calculations, what he's paying out of pocket for his wife and that he's not on health care that's that to me is i will take that over another damn talking head any day of the week yeah anything what i like about that scene so i just made a point about how i uh, avoid details that people are going to find extreme <laughs> but in that case we let him go we let yeah. him do all these yeah. so she brings home 200 months a week the copay would be 350 and and i'm not expecting anyone to follow along it's just then he gets to the conclusion and he's like, so the bottom line is I'm not on healthcare. Right. right. And, so it's, and, and, and so it's all these calculations that led him to the conclusion that, and I'm sitting there filming it and I got him and I got the American flag in the background and he's, that's what it is. It's luck. And I'm thinking that's what, that's the best we can do right now is you have these guys just hoping for good luck and trying to get by without healthcare. So let me just, as, as we close, let me just say, ain't no such thing as luck. You got to be, you got, you mean to, to, to be lucky. You got to be, you got to be there, brother. You got to be there. So, so that ain't luck. Yeah. And so this guy was facing this decision for, he is a leader of the union and that guy had some fight in him. He was ready. If they had let him go out and, and start doing more things, he would have been first to do it. I was wondering.
he, but at the same time, he's the one paying one of the biggest prices because his wife's on chemotherapy and he doesn't have healthcare. So that kind of division where he has to lead this and doesn't want to give in, but is facing that personal trauma is heavy. And it, it, to me, it just gives it a, a level of depth to people that I didn't have prior. So we got to wrap, but just real quick, are you, are you got any projects? I know you're working on, on getting this out. And by the way, I love as a labor film programmer, I love that you guys make the films available for free. So thank you for that. Any more projects uh, in the works that you can tell us about? Yeah, definitely. And, and that is, you, you talk about advantage. I talk about taking challenges and making them advantages. One of our advantages is we're free. We're always free. We love to collaborate with people on screenings. We'd love to eventually then it goes online and everybody can watch it. Teachers can bring it into the classroom. We make education guides that go with the movies. All that can be found at a bfnadocs.org. All the, all that content. So yeah, we have a lot of stuff coming up. First of all, like the Go-Go City film about gentrification in Washington just went online. We had this out to vote film set in Baltimore about formerly incarcerated individuals that have become leaders in democracy and voting at Baltimore. That's going to come online soon. This, we're going to be doing events around this film. And then we have, I think I have two films coming up. One about the Washington DC neighborhood of Berry Farms, which is a historic community in Washington. It's not an autobiography. It's a biography of a neighborhood going all the way back to the beginning and taking it to the present day. And then getting into the international stuff, I'm working on something about Chinese investment in Serbia of all places, right? Like there, there's that one coming, but that's also labor. I've been out in Serbia in these investment, in these mines and factories where the quality of standards and safety is appalling. And, and in some ways it's a continuation of this kind of work. My colleague, Tony Soberfeld has a film about just historic racial injustices in the United States. And I think he could explain it better than me, but he's working with Professor Carol Anderson and revisiting some of these traumatic moments in American history. So we have a lot of stuff coming up and, and we'd love for folks to check it out. And the price is right. Absolutely. And you can send us, send us the link. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you so much. Sam George, it has absolutely been a pleasure talking to you. And I thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about it. It's really a pleasure to be a part of this conversation. All righty. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Take care. That's it for our show this week. Thanks so much for listening. Special thanks this week to Evan Papp at Epithy Media for his work editing this week's show. If you're looking for help with your media project, Evan is absolutely terrific. And he's available. Check it out at empathymedialab.com. Keep an eye out for our next episode when Elise and I chat with Amanda Yee and Soleil Ho about Black Dinners Matter. Until then, I'm Chris Garlock. See you at the movies.